In this episode, Paul Maxwell and I talk about Reformed theology and its effect on people who have undergone trauma. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Paul Maxwell. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me on, Wyatt. Oh, thanks for being here. It's good to be able to talk to you. I've followed you a little bit online, so this is the first time we get to really be face-to-face, even though I know it's the internet, but we're still somewhat face-to-face. Yes, we are. This is better than whatever else there is out there, I think, for sure. I think so. I think so. Um, yeah. Would you mind just kind of briefly introducing yourself so that anyone listening can kind of know who Paul Maxwell is? Yeah, sure. Uh, So I am from Hyde Park, New York, about an hour and a half north of uh, New York City, right on the Hudson River. Uh, Became a Christian at a Youth for Christ event when I was 16. And uh, I spent a few years in sort of the Assemblies of God context. Uh, There's not really a heavy evangelical presence up in upstate New York. There's a few places. I think there's an Acts 29 church in Troy and there's some, you know, things going on there, but you know, it's pretty, pretty sparse. And so eventually I found an e-free church there mm. and uh, the pastor there discipled me. And uh, up to that point in my life, I had planned to go to West Point Military Academy my whole life. That was my whole life's dream. And then I became a Christian and I just had this deep desire to understand God's word. And the notion that I could learn Greek and Hebrew was absolutely insane to me. And the pastor who discipled me was from Moody Bible Institute. So he said, you know, listen, man, why not go to Moody? Yeah. And so that's what I did. And uh, I, I wanted to study the languages there and didn't even know what I was signing up for. I'm sure, I'm sure much like yourself, you, you know, when you like, <laughs> what makes you want to study the languages certainly does come true to some degree, but then what you're actually getting yourself into is a whole nother story. Uh, but that, that was just a ton of fun for me at Moody. Moody was just a, a total blast, Good. you know, uh, learning from just some of these amazing guys with really pastoral hearts, but who could really challenge me to think for myself, read sources that weren't comfortably within our tradition critically. I mean, that was just so much fun, really just learning, learning how language works and learning how to think was just life-changing for me. And so, there, I encountered Cornelius Van Til, um, who I loved, but I considered theology more of a hobby. I didn't really like systematic theology so much. Uh, I considered myself more of a bib studies guy, and I really wanted to study with uh, Greg Beal. And at the time, he was at Wheaton, and I said, hey, man, I want to do this biblical exegesis program that you've written here. This is amazing. And he said, uh, yeah, that's great, but I'm going to Westminster. And uh, for me, that was kind of an aligning of the stars because... I had been reading deeply in Van Til for a while, would never have made a decision to go study Van Til for the sake of studying Van Til anywhere. But the fact that Beale was going to be there, and they, of course, had Vern Poitras and so many other amazing biblical scholars at Westminster, Westminster was just a clear choice for me after that conversation with, with Beale. And so I went there, had another sort of uh, experience you couldn't even predict, you know, when you don't know, you don't know. And so you're getting into Westminster. And everything from uh, uh, developed a really close relationship with Scott Oliphant there ended up being his research assistant for a while which was just a ton of fun uh, and then also got pretty deeply embedded in CCEF Christian Counseling and Education Foundation there uh, and it ended up doing research assistant work for David Pallas and Ed Welch and ended up becoming the marketing manager there for a while which was also uh, uh, great fun and that was kind of in the early you know the the heydays of TGC and and DG, and before we even knew what the internet really was going to be for evangelicals, you know, Twitter had been a thing for like three or four years at that point. So things were fun, fun back then, I suppose. And so uh, at that point, I had a conversation with David Pallison and, and a few others who were just saying that um, not much has been done on trauma from an evangelical perspective and or from a biblical counseling perspective. And those were the tools I had to conceive of the task at that time. But uh, I, I was working through some things, some things from my own past. Uh, I was looking into the issue of trauma as a potential tool to classify some of the experiences I had gone through, but I didn't really know what it meant. And I really was skeptical about its utility for me. And, and its relationship to theology was dubious as I was reading more and more. Trauma is basically the word that required the invention of the term concept creep because the term just changes so much. Um, and, mm-hmm. and even now in our culture, trauma has really, I think, become the term that uh, is the, I mean, it, it's the engine that's driving all of the change that's happening culturally for us right now in ways that are so much bigger than we even could have imagined when we first starting applying this at a popular level, rather than just as a technical term to refer to, you know, heinous, the experience of some kind of heinous act of evil or terrible suffering or something like that. So, so um, I wanted to do my PhD um, somewhere that could accommodate uh, genuine biblical engagement with that 
concepts, but also would give me the liberty to learn as much as I wanted to learn from secular psychology. So the only place that I felt could really hold the tension of those things was, well, it's not really about the place so much as, as it is about the advisor, right? You have your PhD, you understand that. So Van, Kevin Van Huser and I had been building a relationship for a lot, quite a long time at that point. And he and I had this conversation going about trauma and just kind of the, the interdisciplinary task in front of many new evangelical PhD students. And I thought, this is what I want to do. You know, I had uh, working with with Scott Oliphant at Westminster. I was really interested in the issue of the Trinity and divine condescension, simplicity, retrieving, you know, reformed neo-scholastic categories to do constructive work today on that issue. But honestly, I just kind of became bored with it. I felt I had published two articles in JETS, one on simplicity and one on Trinity on the eternal subordination of the sun. And I kind of just felt that I had answered those questions for myself. And so I wasn't really interested in devoting an entire, an entire dissertation on top of that to answering those questions. So I thought, you know, trauma really is the thing that I want to understand from a biblical perspective. So that's what I did. Hmm. Went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School to study with Kevin. While I was there, I taught philosophy at uh, Moody, uh, my alma mater, which was like my lowest paying, but most enjoyable. It's my favorite job I've ever had in my absolute <laughs> life. They could, I, I, they could have asked me to pay them and I would have still done it because it was just such a great experience, you know, just working with your, working with your heroes, you know? So, um, so that was a lot of fun for me. And, and honestly, teaching philosophy was a great opportunity to sort of concretize a lot of those historical uh, concepts and even just the formal and informal laws of logic and, and teaching those to college students while they were learning the history of philosophy just really helped me to understand a lot of those concepts better while I was doing this work on trauma, which I thought deserved the best biblical rational reflection that I could possibly give it. And so uh, ended up finishing that in 2018. And that's going to be the book. <laughs> it's, a, it's a play on uh, Kevin Van Hooser's book, The Drama of Doctrine. My dissertation is going to be published by Fortress Press in 2020. It's called The Trauma of Doctrine. Hmm. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's retrieves reformed categories, but also highlights some of the ways that reformed concepts are irrevocably problematic for the experience of trauma by a believer and uh, tries not to shy away from what the empirical evidence gives us about just some of the habits and patterns of the ways reformed communities supply pastoral care in our cultural context and how that can inhibit things. But more significantly than that, the ways that maximalist conceptions of divine control and human moral corruption can kind of get in the way of traumatic recovery for people sometimes. And uh, you can you, you could do that kind of analysis with any theology. It's not to say reformed theology is the bad for trauma, you know, people who are traumatized, but merely to say you could look at any theology and just kind of be open to the ways that those concepts, even rightly understood, can become obstacles to necessary recovery for uh, right. people who have experienced a traumatic event. So I thought that it was appropriate for me to do it because when I was writing it, I considered myself as someone coming from a reform perspective. So I thought I'm, I'm, I'm not going to have the problem of being somebody who's looking to get a jab in at reform theology. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, uh, I was willing to take a critical look at my own tradition and say, you know, what are we really saying here? Because a lot of times when you have sort of a hagiographical approach to your own tradition, you end up missing a lot of the depth that's there because you're shying away from contradiction. Uh, which in the Christian view, I mean, that, you know, to get not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but, you know, Cornelius Van Til, one of his famous lines is that the Christian is in praise of, uh, of apparent contradiction, but, of, uh, but abhors real, real contradiction, of course. But, but of course, for us, all there is is perceived contradiction. All there is is apparent contradiction, you know? Um, and so for us, we just have to find those and call them mystery, which is a beautiful thing, which we should embrace. And so I just hadn't seen a lot of that in our theological methodology in evangelical circles. Um, not that there's not a category for mystery or that there's some kind of hyper-rationalism. I don't think there is, but I just didn't really see mystery playing a, you know, a big part on the stage of evangelical thought. And I thought, well, if we're willing to embrace it, then we're, look, we're, then we're willing to look plainly at exactly what's there. And that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I felt hadn't been done by evangelicals about the reform tradition and also about some of the harsh realities of trauma. Because a lot of times we want to, because of our theological anthropology, put things in a very 
strictly defined categorical definition of exactly how human beings work from a top-down perspective, but you've got all this bottom-up data from the biggest discipline in the world, which is psychology, mm. and to just say, well, I don't know, you know, like, <laughs> just not listen to it. That's, um, I mean, you can do it, but there are consequences to that that you won't be able to understand. And when people look at you and say, you don't get it, you've got to admit, yes. I mean, if I'm not willing to read the literature, it's very possible there's something I don't understand. So I just wanted to be the person who understood. And that's all I ever wanted to do with theological education. It's the only reason I've ever paid a single dollar for tuition is because I had questions and I wanted to answer those questions. I never aspired to be a church leader. I never aspired to be a pastor. I never aspired to be a thought leader. I never wanted to play any kind of leadership role in the church or parachurch organization. I just wanted to know and experience God as he is. And that's what I've gotten out of it so far for good or ill. And so that's a little bit of my story. Sorry, that was a little rambly. No, I like it. I, you know, it's interesting when you're telling your story a little bit, I can relate a lot in, in college. I really got into Cornelius Van Til. In fact, I don't know if this is accurate, but at that time, I think I read everything he'd published his class mm. syllabi, his books. I'm you sure there's more that I, I missed, but yeah, I, I really got into him. And I, I think probably for a similar reason at that point, I, I had be, I either had become a Christian around 16, 17, or at least was very interested at that point. And so I just wanted to learn. And so I um, pursued education and I was, I was open to Christian ministry for sure, but it was more just like this need to know more than anything yeah. else. Right. And uh, I, I didn't study with Kevin uh, Van Hooser, but I very much appreciate him. I'm KJV only in that sense. Yeah, right. Yes. You know, um, good, good. I'm, I'm sorry. That was a dumb joke. but <laughs> No, no, no. It's, it's right out there. It's coming at you like a train going three miles an hour. You, you yeah. can't resist it. Yeah. yeah. I'm a dad, so I'm allowed to make those jokes, you know? You are allowed. I'm not allowed, but you are allowed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I really appreciated him. And um, I did my PhD too. And in one sense, it was just to know it's not, not even the topic of my PhD that I was totally drawn into, but it was really uh, biblical theology on the Psalms. I just wanted to understand. Mm. And I've, you know, now that I'm done my PhD, I would say that I am almost learning more because I can do whatever yeah. I want. I'm right. reading more. I'm writing, thinking, talking about whatever I want to talk about. And now it's interesting. So I think there's a bit of a similarity there. Then you moved on to talking about your topic, the, uh, the trauma of doctrine, hmm. which every MDiv student feels when they're in their introduction. Yes, class. that's right. Yeah. That's right. But you mean it different, I know. No, no, yeah. And uh, I think there's something to dogma that it is so universal that sometimes <laughs> it's unable to meet the needs of an individual in, in the way that it needs to in a pastoral sense. And that's why you have right. kind of pastoral theology. Hmm. And I also think some of the things you said overlap a little bit with the larger discussion between kind of faith and reason, faith and science. Because mm -hmm. you, you, you brought up the idea that some of our reformed categories, probably of anthropology, uh, seem to conflict or maybe are not helpful to use when we're, really, when we're dealing with the complexity of, of human problems in, in terms of psychology and trauma. So I'd be interested for you to kind of maybe open up a little bit about that. Like maybe you could kind of summarize your book or just kind of off the cuff explain what sort of reform categories do you find to be troublesome or unhelpful in the discussion, you know, when it comes to the discussion of trauma? Yeah, that's a, very, that's a very good question. So uh, I, I wasn't prepared to summarize it, but I mean, I think- Or just pick one any, that's interesting to you. No, 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 but, I, but I'm, I'm happy, I'm, I'm eager to answer your questions. So, so let me just sort of frame my approach to relating trauma to reform theology, because I don't think of it, first of all, as an integrative task, because that assumes that the two are categorically comparable in some way, right? And I don't think they are as closely, you know, categorically related as we might think. So I think before we even talk about integration, we have to talk first about understanding and conception. And so that, so, so when it gets, when it comes to look, evaluating the import of reformed ideas, just, and not just reformed ideas, right? Because if you talk to a, refor a reformed person, they think every idea is a reformed idea, but distinctively reformed ideas, you know? Um, like maximalist conceptions of divine control um, and, and maximalist conceptions of human moral corruption. So 
The problem, first of all, in understanding these ideas rightly is that there's a lot of ego uh, produced by anxiety around the theodicy dilemma as it stands for the reformed community because the reformed community faces an entirely different enterprise as it relates to the problem of evil than does, for example, a community that doesn't believe in a maximalist sense of divine control. And there are appeals made to Calvin as though he had solved this problem internally in his system or, or, or others, right, who say, well, there's a difference between God's decorative will and his permissive will and uh, all these kinds of things. But at the end of the day, the Calvinists believe that God looked at the potential rape of a little girl and said, yep, that's happening. That's happening by my will, right? And that's a problem. And then Calvinists shy away from that. And the fact is that's, that's a deep problem and that every single person who's traumatized has to look at all of the heinous evil they've experienced in life and say, God said yes to this. Not just yes, but uh, not, not only that he couldn't have prevented it, but this was according to his will, which really puts you in a state of cognitive dissonance as it relates to God, because then if all I can trust him for is my salvation and everything else is just left up for grabs, then what are we even doing here, right? And so these are just some of the psychological tensions that Reformed theology can tease out in a person. Now, I want to be really careful because I don't believe the Calvinist doctrine well, uh, and by the Calvinist doctrine, I mean Calvin's doctrine of divine control, which is actually stronger than a lot of modern reformed conceptions of uh, divine control and sovereignty. But the, the Calvin's own conception of divine control, I don't think there's anything wrong with the, the idea per se, nor his conception of human moral corruption. And I don't think, and, and I say this as much, because such a statement would be absurd to say this idea is traumatizing, right? Or this idea is problematic, or this idea can't be true because it's so horrible. You know, we, we, all, we all hear those kinds of arguments and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the reform community, to our credit, is really sensitive to the epistemological issues around these things. So what I don't wanna do, and I, what I really try to distinguish myself from methodologically is an existentially argued theology, right? I'm not really interested in that at all. Whatever's the truth, that's what I want to know. It's, if it's the most, if we live in the most horrendous world, you know, conceivable, I at least want to know that we do. And so, so, um, so what I, what I do, first of all, is I, I have to distinguish myself from people who reject the Calvinist conception of God simply because they don't like it, which is what many, you know, many critiques of Reformed theology do come down to that. It's a, it's a heart appeal. Right, and I'm not interested in heart appeals. I am interested in the heart, but I'm interested first of all in understanding the truth. So, so when I approach reform theology and try to be honest about the ways that it can be disruptive to traumatic healing, um, I the strongest we can put it, I think, is to say that reformed ideas, uh, distinctively reformed ideas, mainly being maximalist conceptions of divine control and human moral corruption. They can, um, they can incline traumatized individuals to be more psychologically likely to negatively internalize those concepts in their mind rather than to positively internalize them. So what we really want to avoid is any kind of universal claim about how a certain theological idea relates to human psychology, which we absolutely cannot do. But if we say that on the negative side of things, right, that we can't, to, to make a claim such as, you know, a Calvinist conception of divine control is psychologically unhealthy, that's not true. That's on its face, it isn't true, right? I mean, that, that, that's your, I mean, we have empirical data that shows otherwise. We have, uh, you know, we have N equals one data that tells us otherwise, right? We have every single person who has a positive experience psychologically of the Calvinist conception of divine control is proof otherwise, right? So we can't make any such ridiculous claim. Likewise, can't we make any, a claim in the other direction, which is actually closer to my point that, well, the Calvinist doctrine of divine control is psychologically healthy for everybody to believe. Now, this doesn't get down to the fact or the matter of whether it's the truth or not, right? Because I'm not, I'm not concerned, first of all, whether that Calvinist doctrine is true or not. I mean, personally, I'm concerned with it, but materially in my dissertation, I'm concerned with how does it interface with human psychology and how can we retrieve other reformed concepts that are, um, that are closer to the traumatic wound itself, to the traumatic wound site itself, 
to give us a little bit more ability, uh, rather a little bit more ability, uh, <laughs> more mobility rather for the traumatized person to be able to make autonomous theological decisions for their own sake on their own behalf, on the basis of their own critical thinking, right? And so um, we see this all throughout scripture, right? Uh, of, of people being horrified by the truth, people being horrified by the truth of God and the truth of his interaction with the world and finding him to be wanting. Um, and we see that we see those anxieties faithful, faithfully expressed by David in the Psalms. I'm sure they were faithfully expressed by Paul in the prison cell. You know, uh, well, yes, we're sorrowful and we're always rejoicing. But psychologically speaking, we know that's not true because we don't even know what that means on a psychological level. What does it mean to be always this thing or always that thing? Right. In principle, we know that we want to be dis we we strive to be dispositionally these things. But none of us are ever always any one thing or another thing. Right. So I love the way that Paul sets up the ideal but then also i think we have to assume paul's operating with a much more sober sense of how human beings really work so when it comes to how the reformed uh, doctrines relate to trauma uh I, I i won't go so much into the details of my argument because um i think that could really uh consume a lot of our time needlessly perhaps but i will say that my basic thesis is that Maximalist conceptions of divine control and human moral corruption, which are a faithful reading of John Calvin, produce a uniquely problematic uh, issue for Reformed theology as it relates to the problem of evil that can't be erased away by saying, oh, well, you don't really understand the problem of evil. Oh, well, you don't really understand the Calvinist doctrine of sovereignty. Oh, you don't really understand the Calvinist doctrine of, of, of human depravity. No, I do. I do. And it's still problematic. Uh, again, not problematic conceptually, problematic psychologically. And I go into empirical evidence uh, to explain why, and I uh, unveil the psychological research in that regard. But what I want to do is say the reform category that we can retrieve that actually helps us positively speaking with trauma is Bobbing's conception, actually his unique articulation of the imagination. And for him, the fall occurs in the imagination first. Uh, because Adam, uh, uh, or Adam and Eve, rather, their imaginations beautified the apple, and that, for Bavink, was the fall. And then the fall is what construes reality for us in such a way that the intellect takes hold of it and the will acts according to it. Um, and so that's a quasi-voluntarist conception of, you know, the human being. But the imagination is that which construes reality one way or another. And so the traumatic wound site, likewise, occurs in the imagination. And I also want to say that faith itself is an act of the imagination. And the imagination itself is a faculty, but it's more complicated than the will and it's more complicated than the intellect. The imagination is a faculty, which is a conglomeration of faculties. You know, like I don't know what the corporate structure is, but I'm sure Fritos owns like three chip companies and then Fritos is owned by Coke or whatever, you know? And so, so imagine the imagination is kind of like the Coca-Cola of mm. the, the human faculties as far as, you know, psychologically speaking, mm. it's, it's, it's the conglomerate faculty, which um, gives us a singular terminus for all of the inner workings and components of the self, the immaterial components of the self. And so, um, so the imagination is the, is the site uh, but but uh, actually, I, want, I do want to uh, qualify what I'm saying here, and you can probably tell that I haven't prepared because I'm kind of rambling a little bit. But no, I but, like I like this is almost yeah. better because I can yeah. hear it raw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is good. So yeah. so 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 the um, the imagination is more than the sum of its parts. It's not merely the um, it's not merely the congruent cooperation of the intellect and the will. For example, um, the imagination is a third thing. It is something in itself that can't be um, reduced to some kind of cooperative function. part of function. who we are, but yet it's, it can be yeah, distinguished conceptually. It, is, it has quiddity to it uh, that's distinct from merely whatever the intellect and the will brings to it. So, so, so the imagination is the singular site of faith and trauma there. And so what I do there is I actually kind of say there's three kinds of imagination, which I won't go into. There's the inflective imagination, the perceptive imagination, and uh, in this exact moment, I'm not able to remember the third kind of imagination, but I essentially line that up with the three, Calvin's three uh, fold division of faith, right? We have the notitia, census, and fiducia, knowledge, faith, uh, uh, knowledge, assent, and trust. Uh, and then I correlate that with uh, three different kinds of trauma and uh, essentially try to fragment that into nine ways of traumatically experiencing uh, religious concepts. Mm -hmm. And then I measure reformed theology through that metric and try to essentially plot 
how it relates to all of those things through modern legal culpability theory to say, how can we make sense of the goodness of God without losing such semantic connection to whatever it means that God is good, that we all ultimately end up saying, well, he's good in some way that we could never understand. Because if that's true, then when we say that God is good, we're truly saying something we don't understand, right? Now we're in the realm of Meister Eckhart. Now we're beyond Thomas Aquinas, we're beyond Duns Scotus, or mystics at that point. And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to rescue Reformed theodicy from mysticism, which in its current form, it is. It's an Eckhartian mysticism. And, and, so, and so I'm trying to rescue, from it, uh, rescue it, not in the Gordon Clark, Duns Scotus, and, you know, hierarchy chain of being way where when I'll, if I say God is good, it has to mean exactly what I think the word good means, right? Which is that rationalist perspective. I, we have to respect the doctrine of analogy, but the doctrine of analogy insists on some semantic continuity, right? And so to the degree that there's semantic continuity between my word good and the attribute of God, which is goodness, mm-hmm. there legal culpability theory is relevant because it's the most common sense, straightforward, direct way of measuring moral responsibility. I think what you're, what you're saying right now, mm-hmm. um, this last point about the doctrine of analogy and God's goodness is so key. Mm-hmm. So key. Uh, I, I remember recently talking to a pastor about the justice of eternal perdition. And basically our answer is, well, it doesn't, it's not obvious how the justice works out. I mean, you could have sure. a 13 year old girl different country born, kidnapped, abused, murdered. Right. And you could say, well, she's, she was a, never heard the gospel. Right. And therefore, her life was suffering to suffering to suffering. And now she's justly suffering further. Right. And right. so, you know, the answer is, and I think this is an okay answer, especially if you don't know, is mm-hmm. I don't know how that works out, but I trust God. And yet, what you're getting at is that's, well, I think that sometimes you do have to answer that way. It still right. is a bit of a punt because yes. there's an analogical concept of goodness. It, if God is good and his creation's good, mm-hmm. we have to be able to recognize goodness or else yes. it loses all its meaning. Right. And even, even the fact that God commands us in Leviticus, and of course this is repeated by Jesus and throughout the New Testament, be holy as I am holy. So God mm. himself insists on semantic continuity between the moral categories we use to understand him and the moral categories we use to evaluate ourselves. It becomes complicated when we say we use these moral categories to understand God, we use these moral categories to evaluate ourselves, but can we use these moral categories to evaluate God? If we can't, then like you said, we, then, then to say that he's good is, is, is semantically meaningless. But, the, um, but it's interesting, you know, that point you made, that case study, because a lot of people really don't like this. And, and people, people put Bavink in a box and Ventil, actually, uh, unfortunately, <laughs> but, but they are so much heterodox. I wish there was a lighter word, that, you know, heterodox light. I wish there was some word for just coloring outside the lines in a way that doesn't threaten your orthodoxy. You know, I think we need more of a category for that. But, but for Bavink, because as soon as I say this, people are going to think I'm going full Karl Rahner, you know, universalism, but, and, and I'm not. But, but Bavink does say that we, and, th- and this is similar to something that Hans Balthasar says in his book, Love Alone is Credible. Uh, he does say in Reformed Dogmatics that we don't know for sure whether the, the, the tribes who've never heard the gospel could be saved. We know that God has established a norm by which he distributes and dispenses salvation and its benefits to his people, which is the church and the sacraments. He says we know that for a fact. What we don't know is whether other people are granted those same benefits, not in a way that's separated from Christ and not, not without recognition of the fact that it's not ideal, but Bobbing says, we have to say that we don't know. We just, we cannot say they're all going to hell for a fact. Um, and I love that because he's doing, he's getting that, uh, he's getting that from his own tradition. He, he, he's applying a radical conception of divine control. And he's, he gets this a little bit from, um, oh, what's his name? Luther's systematic guy, um, Melanchthon. Yeah, Melanchthonism. You know, he's getting that a little bit from Melanchthon. And, and, and his, his notion is simply, you know, we, the, the, the love of God is so radical that we can distinguish between the ordained norm by which God dispenses his benefits 
and the fact that he is free to dispense those benefits through Christ. There are laws to soteriology, mm. right? Just like there are laws to gravity, right? It's not like God's like, oh, you know, Christ is crucified and raised uh, for, you know, to save the world from sin through spirit, wrath, you know, which we're going to apply to believers through spirit, wrath, faith. But I'm going to save Bob over here without Christ because I'm just free. You know, that's kind of a Bardian or Ronarian notion of, of salvation, which Bobbing's not talking about. But what he's saying is there may be other sort of paranormal ways that God does dispense Christian salvation through Christ to people that don't have access to the explicit Christian message of the gospel through the church. But he applies it uh, not only, but but his reasoning for that is for a way to explain how children outside the covenant could have faith. So what he's saying isn't that he, God can just give it to anybody, but that spirit wrought faith can be prompted in anybody's mm. heart, even the heart of an infant. And right, N.T. Wright has a great analogy for this uh, when he talks about. Um, he's actually talking about how uh, you know mentally handicapped people can receive salvation, and he says we can see he he conceives of the mind as a balloon, right? And when you blow into a balloon just a little bit, or when you blow into a balloon a lot, they're both just as full. And in the same way, you know, you can add just a little bit of intellect to faith and it's, and, and the faith is still just as full as somebody who can blow a, a ton of intellectual credibility into their faith. And so for him, he says, we don't always know what the modality of faith looks like psychologically speaking. And that's what makes Baving such a powerful systematic theologian is he understood psychology and he was always striving to accommodate it in his systematic theology. So he says, in principle, because of the fact that I can accommodate infants outside the covenant being elect and actually experiencing spirit or faith, I have to say, I have to say the same things for you know, uh, people in tribes that have never heard the gospel. And what I do is I actually apply that same thing. Uh, you, you know, it's interesting, Kevin Van Hooser initially asked me to write, um, he has a personal relationship with somebody who, you know, has Alzheimer's. And he said, "Why? well, you know, I'm interested in trauma. Why not write your dissertation on Alzheimer's disease? And that catalyzed an idea for me. I thought, well, I think there's a categorical analogy there, even for Bavink, because you apply the same thing to an infant, the same thing to a, a tribesman who's never heard the gospel, same thing to somebody with Alzheimer's disease. You have somebody that could potentially have spirit wrought faith can't add the explicit intellectual elements that we require of people who have heard the gospel to that faith. I apply it to people with trauma because I look at that and I say in the same way that Alzheimer's disease is a, neuro a neurological disruption of your cognitive faculties, trauma is an imaginative wound and therefore mm. a psychological disruption of the same cognitive faculties and agency is diminished in a qualitatively similar sense in trauma as it is in Alzheimer's, as it is in infants, as it is for those same realities for which Bavink tries to accommodate in his own sort of paranormal soteriology that he cultivates. And I, and I don't mean, to, I just don't know another word for it. I mean, there are other ways, I suppose you could say alternative, or I don't know. I, I don't like any of those words because it sounds like you're trying to say something new and I'm not. I'm just trying to accommodate new realities with old truths, right? And so, so that, that's kind of the, the place that I go. And the final place I go to bring an end, to bring an end to a complicated answer to a very simple question. In fairness, you did ask me what my dissertation was about, which is- No, yeah, saying, you never want to do that to someone no, who you, a PhD. No, no, you don't. And so the, the final point that I make, actually, because I am a Ventilian, I consider myself a Ventilian, is that we needed to recover a Christian notion of autonomy. We don't like that word. Even my advisor, Kevin Van Hooser, was like, self-law really and it's like okay that's first of all that's the etymological fallacy second of all uh we 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 can say that we can recover autonomy without meaning metaphysical autonomy in the sense that van Til rejects it right when i say autonomy i'm talking about when i'm at work and i i'm i'm leading a project at work and i ask my boss hey can i have a little bit more autonomy on this project uh, would he be right to respond to me? Human beings don't have autonomy. We've known this since postmodernism. It, it's No, he knows what I mean. And the average person knows what I mean when I say autonomy, right? Self-governance, what Aristotle calls autocracy, right? It's the ability to self-govern according to your own principles is that you are an individually self-governed person. It's what Jocko Willink means, right? When he talks about discipline, it's about having rule over yourself, which does not compete and is not competitive with uh, God's rule over us. And the fact that we equivocate those terms is a huge hindrance to mm. psychology and to the Christian ability to learn from psychology in a way that actually enriches all of the benefits we receive in our progressive sanctification through Christ. So that's as short as I could make it with zero prep. <laughs> I like it. I, uh, we said a lot, I think. Yeah. 
I, I do think it's helpful to kind of run through all those ideas. I think I interrupt you because I think the doctrine of analogy is, is so important. Somehow when we say this is good, yes, it is somehow true for us and for God. Yes. Now there's an interval there of distinction right. mm-hmm. that we can't break. There's a creator and creature distinction to use Van Til, like, well, Christian language, but Van Til language. Sure. And I, I do think, it, you, know, you, you did talk about trying to explain this. I do think that it is appropriate when you don't know to say, I trust God. And I think in the case of I think so. yeah. how, how all the justice and love idea works out. And for those who don't hear the gospel, I think you have to just believe what scripture says, trust God. But that doesn't mean that you should shut off your mind. I mean, you can explore, think through, try to understand. And I think that's what you're doing. Yeah. Um, then we come to the discussion of, of trauma and autonomy at the end here. Mm-hmm. Now, that's particularly interesting to me because when you first said autonomy, I thought you meant something different than what you meant. Hmm. But what you meant was um, a sort of self-mastery. Uh, maybe that's the wrong word. A sort no, of uh, that's that. Okay. That's that's why I use the word autonomy because there's no other word. Okay, we good. Ha- we, okay. we have to reclaim it. We must reclaim it. Uh, psych. I just I, I merely mean psychological autonomy. That's what I mean. You know. Hmm. Um, sorry, so, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just I think it's an irreplaceable word. Yeah. And so when you were talking about earlier some of the maximal versions of God's control, mm-hmm. that would imply a sort of diminished role for kind of an individual's ability to self-master themselves. Because if it's all, I know this is the bad word to use, but if it all feels like fate, I know it's not in the calendar no, sure. for sure. But if it sure. feels that way to you as a person, right? then you may, especially if you're, if you're predisposed or if you had trauma in your life or if you're in a place that you're not thinking properly, right. you may be predisposed to think, okay, well, I'm going to let, totally let go. It's right. all under the auspices of fate. Even if that fate seems evil and unjust, you know, whatever God ordains is right. Right. Um, uh, and yet, that's not, that's, not, that's not what the reformers were saying, I don't think, at all. No, no. Nor what the doctrine they were trying not to means. say that, for sure, yeah. But some, I can see how people could get there to this kind of despair because of the, you know, fate ravishes you, essentially. Yeah, and so that is a, certainly a component of it. Um, the other component of it is just really the pressing problem of, I, I actually try to, I haven't seen this really come up. I actually think I did encounter it in one book, but but I came up with this concept of, we have the logical problem of evil and the, and the evidential problem of evil, and there are many ways of slicing that pie, but we never really talk about the existential problem of evil because we don't know how to understand it. Because with evidence, you've got the scientific, you know, rules of scientific uh, reasoning, and then with the rational problem, you've simply got the laws of logic. But then uh, with the existential problem of evil, there's not necessarily laws there that help you understand whether it's a legitimate grievance or not. And so I think the problem that people are left with, and <laughs> there, I have a, an excursus about how Calvin really had to chill out throughout his ministry because he was pounding the table on divine sovereignty and everybody was leaving his church you know, he was still becoming popular, but but he was losing a lot of friendships. And you actually see this in his letters, uh, volumes two and four. And um, oh, I forget, I, I'm not recalling all their other names right now. But but um, you know, he was telling people like their kids were dying, their wives were dying. He's like, remember, God did that. God did that. God did that. And he never stopped believing that. But but eventually, he started writing people, and he was like you know, who would go through tragedy, uh, uh, specifically after he lost his own child um, and, and, his, and his wife who did not believe that he was a good husband. And I say that as a huge Calvin fan and also as probably not a good husband, right? Like I'm not judging Calvin, right? We're, we're, all, we're all humans, we all are feet of clay. But, but um, you know, uh, but eventually in Calvin's pastoral letters, he begins telling people who are going through trouble or, or who are grieving the loss of a child or something like that. He would say, hey, why don't you come to um, our town and just relax. And I made all the people at church promise not to talk to you. And then they'd write back like the next day, be like on my way, you know, and he started being able to rebuild his friendships again because he started to understand grief. You know, he started to understand that it wasn't all so simple as he thought it was when he was 30, which is why I wish Calvin hadn't died so young because we always like to think of these guys as having this coherent theology, right? What did Calvin believe? What did Thomas believe? These were, these were human organisms in process. And I would have loved to have read Calvin's 15th edition of his Institutes that he released at age 80, yeah. you know, because he I wrote, think it would have a lot different. He wrote his first edition at, at 27, I think. Yes, that's right. And, uh, 15, something, something, yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, 
<laughs> I mean, it's it's not. He's brilliant, but oh, he is, he's yes. also twenty seven, and uh, right. you change. In fact, I, I've seen the argument that he uh, increasingly be- learns and becomes a Chalcedonian throughout his revisions of the institutes, and that becomes oh, really? sort of a a more a controlling motif. Mm, interesting. He he is certainly burdened by creedalism and wants to be faithful, but also wants to be faithful to the Reformation and his own personal conscience. That's one of the reasons that, you know, two reasons Calvin's commentaries are valuable for us. Number one, he was one of the first humanists to really write commentaries. And so uh, because he analyzed the text at the level of language rather than ideology, they're still useful for us. But then number two, because he was a man who's bound by his conscience. He, he was a, I mean, he was like the biggest fanboy in the world of Martin Luther and looked at that revolution and said, uh, I think it sparked in him permission to do what he felt was right, which at that time was not a thing to do. You know, it was not conce- it wasn't conceivable that that even could be the right thing to do. And because mm. he was a man of principle, of his own principle, I, I actually think Cal- one of Calvin's greatest virtues was that he, he acted autonomously. He conceived himself as an autonomous individual. Um, uh, in subservience to God. And so, and, and so what, this brings us back to the problem of autonomy, which is, on the one hand, it can, it can, by giving up autonomy, we can lend ourselves to an unhealthy fatalism that nobody wants, right? Even, though, even, even the most stringent Calvinists, even Paul Helm or whoever, everybody's rejecting fatalism, right? Like nobody, nobody says, or nobody, no Christians want to say or will really let themselves say, because God's in control, I'm off the hook. But on the other hand, it's more about um, uh, uh, sort of pushing back on that notion and saying, you know, um, there, there's that, there's that problem of sort of the the zero sum game of God's will and my will, will, which is not so simple as a zero sum game. It's not a zero sum game. But then there's the problem of dealing with God as the one who ordained your problems, you know, and all your pain, and and saying, can anything really make up for any of this? You know, when we see Job, for example, lamenting the 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 fact that he even exists, you know, he blames his mom, he blames God, he blames everybody that ever played a role in the fact that he had to go through what he went through. And he says, what the heck, you know, like what the actual heck? And um, at the end of the day, he just has to let go. He just has to let go. And so when he says that he, you know, that he repents at the end of the book, we can't take that as Job sinning, repenting from sin, because it, it says in all that he did, he did not sin. And mm. so what does it mean that he repented? Um, I think that that means that he just let go. And what he did is he gave into mystery. And by the end of the book, one of the reasons the book of Job is so long is because healing takes a very long time. And one of the reasons the book of Job is so confusing is because grief is very confusing. And so when we relate to God as autonomous individuals, I think there's often a sense that as we go to him with our grief, we have to go to him with grief in a manner where our, even for our worst pain, we go to him with our tail between our legs because somehow it's my fault, you know? And there, there's a book, I think the evangelism in this, uh, what is it? The Sovereignty of God and the Supremacy of Christ, one of those John Piper books. Um, I, lo- I love John Piper, by the way, but it was another article not written by John where the guy said, he, he explicitly says, you know, God ordains every rape. Okay, and he's doing that from uh, an expositional passage, I think, in First Corinthians. I forget which, but or no, in Ephesians, rather, rather. And and I thought, um, hmm, okay, uh, that may be true, that may not be true, but if it is true, then um, we have to deal with the serious psychological fallout of that for ourselves, and we cannot take that to be punishment. And uh, I think that. Um, I think it was Nicholas Walterstorff who wrote in his book where he grieved his son that much of our suffering may be punitive, but certainly not all of it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and unless we can conceive of a moral category for explaining our suffering, we are going to have a relational problem with God. And we are going to have to walk a path of healing that forces us to color outside the lines theologically, not because theology doesn't fit with reality, but because at every point in history, the church has been culturally situated. And insofar as it's culturally situated, there's going to be boundaries. And so there's nothing wrong with the fact that the church requires people to grieve a certain way. The church should be the place where uh, the church has, uh, where, where people are sort of uh, encouraged to grieve a certain way. But I believe 
that um, the Apostle Paul, and this is one of the points I make in my dissertation, uh, uh, is that the Apostle Paul viewed excommunication as a mercy. Uh, and so certainly it was punitive, but when you excommunicate somebody, you free them from the constraints of church, which could be one of the best spiritual things for them they've ever experienced. It could be one of the best things you do for their relationship with God, not because now they're cut off from communion with Christ, but maybe they were cut off from communion with Christ because of the constraints of church. And these are the complex realities that we have to hold, which is to say, we recognize the goodness of everything the church is tasked to do and recognize that it's never gonna do everything perfectly and that's okay. But we also recognize the dignity of having to go on your own hero's journey outside the walls of the church in a way that doesn't always make sense. You don't always have somebody telling you what the right next step to take is. Every single human being that we look back to as a hero of the faith had to do this. Imagine being the first person to say, you know, guys, the New Testament is just not enough. I think we have to formally articulate exactly what our Christology is, right? And then you have to write a creed, right? Imagine the audacity you have to have to be the first person to say the New Testament's not enough, right? I mean, the Biblical Counseling Coalition would have just, you know, absolutely <laughs> canceled you or whatever it is, right? Like you would have been canceled by all the cool Christian blogs or whatever, blah, blah, blah. This guy's a heretic, right? But you have to have audacity because the truth is we did need the creeds and we didn't know we needed them really until we needed them. And then you have to have the same thing for the Reformation, which isn't to say that every revolution's good. It's not to say that all innovation's good. It's not, but the journey of faith we've kind of stolen the adventure from it by making it so controlled and so contained. Faith is an adventure. Faith is an individual adventure with God that sometimes does take place in community and by God's design ought to always be in the context of the church. But part of what it means to be a Christian, part of what it means to be an individual uh, is that we are often called by ourselves, you know, called, called in a way that is not so clearly the voice of God to venture outside of that community to take hold of the faith that we know to be ours and to individuate ourselves as faithful believing Christians in a way that, that we hadn't just received. Um, to be a hero of the faith is to be spiritually audacious. And, um, and sometimes spiritual audacity can get you in a lot of trouble. Sometimes we confuse arrogance for spiritual audacity and we end up hurting a lot of people, right? Which is probably what happens with a lot of megachurch pastors that end up you know, getting caught in sin. It's not to say all spiritual audacity is good. But it is to say that whatever it means to heal from trauma in a reform perspective, it requires bravery and it requires the willingness to color outside the lines, step outside the community if need be, and to do what is necessary to heal. And I thought, if your community doesn't let you do what's necessary to heal, you have to leave. And, and I thought, that's not good. But then as I researched more in the New Testament, I thought that's a concept I could really hold on to where Paul, he has a lot of disdain for Demas and, uh, and others um, that he, that he uh, you know, casts out of fellowship, but he does see those things as mercies to them, I think. And, and I think that his, Paul's prayer and even Jesus's prayer for, for people who are unrepentant or people who can't find a way to fit themselves into church structure in a way that feels psychologically fitting for them, excommunication is a mercy because it gives them the opportunity to individuate themselves in their relationship with God in a context that may not be God's best, but is God's best for them right now. And getting some of that granularity to our conceptions of what sanctification and ecclesiology can look like, boots on the ground level, I don't like it. I don't like it. I'm a, I'm a theology guy. I'm a, I, you know, I used to not like systematics. Now I like systematics. I want to do everything as top down as I possibly can. But so, so I don't like any of this bottom up stuff. I really don't like it. But at the end of the day, I, I'm forced to reckon with it. I'm forced to recognize the truthfulness of it. And I'm not trying to make any kind of revolutionary ecclesiological statements here. I'm, I'm just trying to say, I know this is true. I know the church is good. I know it's God's ordained institution of dispensing grace and salvation to the world through evangelism and missions and discipleship. That is true. But then there's the world we live in. And one way of relating those two things is putting a square peg in a round hole and just trying to put those things together as forcefully as we possibly can. The other way is to say, well, before we learn how to put these two things together, let's learn about this part over here. Let's learn how people work. And then well, that's where the integrative work can come into play. That's when we can do 
it meaningfully integrative work. And, and I see biblical counseling as an integrative view. You know, they always critique integrationists and blah, 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 all this stuff. Biblical counseling is a way of integrating theology and psychology, right? Like, like um, there's a reason why every good biblical counselor out there, and I, I would even sort of shove Eric Johnson unwillingly into that box, <laughs> right? I, every good biblical counselor out there has a terminal degree in secular psychology. Ed Welch, David Powelson, Michael Emlitz, uh, uh, Eric Johnson, all these guys, right? And so they kind of sneak in all of this empirical data, right? And and, they, and it shows up as like biblical wisdom. And it is biblical wisdom, but it's, it's pre-integrated, sold as biblical counseling, right? And mm. so it's packaged. Biblical counseling is not a thing. Biblical counseling is a marketing initiative. That's all it is. It's not a concept. And, and, um, and what we need to understand is that uh, the Bible is authoritative in all things related to the Christian life, and that psychology gives us a lot of information. And before we can even say what the relationship is between those things, we have to read the source material for both. Because, because what you have is a lot of people out there calling themselves biblical counselors who read books about biblical counseling. That's what they do, right? And then they approach these deeper questions of existential dread and trauma and all those things. And they're bringing to that a marketed prepackaged widgets that they don't quite understand. And that's not to say that the biblical counseling view itself um, or, the, or the people engaged in, in, in the institutions who, who are associated with biblical counseling aren't doing serious work. I, th I think they are. I think Ed Welch is like the most legitimate writer out there on, on relating Christian theology to neuropsychology and all of these kinds of things. I mean, I mean you've got some serious hard hitters out there. But the quiet part that nobody says out loud is that the people who are really the best in that world actually took the secular part of it seriously. Mm -hmm. Which, and, and, and that's the thing that people don't understand. You know, I took a class at Westminster Theological Seminary with David Pallison, my first year there, called Theology and Secular Psychology, right? Secular, the word, just comes from the Latin seculare, which just means world. We live in God's world. The secular is ours. The secular is Christian, you know? Um, and so when I think of theology and secular psychology, I just think of the God-world relationship, you know? And that's all we're, that's, that's, that's the work that we're doing. And when we dignify the secular as God's world, you don't have to be afraid of reading the data. You don't have to be scared of, of reading something in psychology. And that's the beauty of Vantillianism, right? That's the liberation that Vantill, well, our, our Lord and Savior, Cornelius Vantill, but, but he doesn't give it to us, right? But, but that, that's, that's the liberty Vantill's articulation grants to us, grants permission to us, is that, that the first time I read Vantill, the existential release I felt was, oh, I don't always have to be the smartest guy in the room now. Right, I don't always have to be the smartest guy in the room, and Christianity can still be totally true, and I'm not an idiot for maintaining my conviction in that. Same thing with secular psychology, you know, and that's what I loved about Pallison, which is so different from sort of the tone of biblical counseling conversations right now, is is you know we can read all of all of psychology, and we don't always have to know what the answer is. Just like with Van Til, you can read a, a really sophisticated agnostic argument against Christianity, or some new some new article by Bart Ehrman that appeals to all these historical sources that say, uh, you know, or, you know, listen to Joe Rogan who, who says, you know, the New Testament was written in the third century by a bunch of bishops, you know, or something like that. And as, as ridiculous as some of these statements are. You know, we may not have all the source material right memorized in our heads in the moments to know why it's not true. And that's 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 okay. You know, and same thing with secular psychology. We can read that stuff and we can do the deep work of integrating our biblical wisdom with all those facts, but we can't do that from we can't do that from a top-down way. We can't read the Bible and then look at psychology before we've even read a single word of a research article and say, I already know what I'm going to think about that. I already know what my conclusion is going to be. We can't do it. It's bad practice. You know, there's best practices and bad practices, and that's a bad practice. So, so anyway, I, I find that all interesting. I think uh, I think some of what you said will be controversial. Okay. Uh, especially with church discipline, I think I see where you're coming from. I do think that uh, Paul is hoping that by the exclusion of the member from the community, that that person might be retrieved. And so I, I do. Right. I, I can see that. Um, I do have to agree, though, with one thing you said afterwards, that 
those who are kind of their best in their fields are those who are ready to explore all possibilities, all data, and to be open to it. And mm. well, I don't have any, I'm not a biblical counselor. I don't have a lot of experience in that world. It strikes me as reasonable that if you know the inductive studies that describe how humans work, right, is generated by the, the data-driven studies, that you would have insight into how humans work, how habits are formed, how change happens, mm-hmm. that could uh, increase your ability to counsel according to scripture. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I mean, that's in my... It, that's my agreement with you. I think we'd probably, want, I'd probably say things a little bit differently, but I love to hear how you say it. Cause I think that's what's exciting about these kinds of conversations. <laughs> Cause you, you shouldn't yeah. always have to agree exactly, but to be able to right. grow and learn from each other. I completely agree. That's what um, I love about Eric Johnson. You know, he creates yeah. a whole charitable community of, he just wants everybody to like have good conversations. Right. That, that's what I, I love. Think about so yeah. I, I, one thing I found interesting is like when I read books, I'm often reading people with whom I disagree. Because right, how right. else will I be self-critical enough to know uh, maybe my blind spots? Or how will I learn if I'm only, only reading someone that yeah. I agree with? Right. Uh, you know, the exception, obviously, if you don't understand the Trinity, you want to read books on the Trinity. Right, right. You exactly, I'm not yes. making that. But yeah, right. I think that's utterly fascinating. I like that. Now, as we're kind of maybe smushing the conversation together to find maybe a place to land. Yeah, sure. I think maybe I want to ask one sort of, it's going to be one question, but it's going to be hard to ask in a sentence. So let me just kind of tease it out and, sure. and then I'll let you pick what aspect of the question feels the best to answer. Sure. And so your, your, your work, if I understand the timeline right, kind of preceded a lot of what's been going on in our social sector in terms of the Me Too movement, mm. some of the justice talks that are happening right now. Uh, in response to that, a lot of reformed people or reformed-ish people have given counter proposals to deal with me too, to deal with social justice, to deal with, you know, whatever it is, X, Y, and Z, you can just count all the, there's thousands of things sure. out there from your point of view. Um, and you can just select where you want here, where have reformed uh, people kind of failed to address these issues well in terms of the real life trauma and how they're applying their theology to it. Hmm. And maybe where have they had great success? In other words, where can we improve and, and where can we continue to succeed and to grow? Wow. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a really great question. Um, I think some, some clear examples of um, kinds of things that uh, are just furniture that should be in the room are institutions like Grace, you know, led by Bosch Division, uh, that, that is kind of a watchdog on all things abuse and just needs to be out there giving everybody the best information that they can have, not only about abuse and recovery in church, but also doing real-time journalistic updates on some of these things, responding, consulting, being available. I think those kinds of parachurch ministries are important. These are institutions that don't have any kind of financial or organizational uh, uh, obligation to uh, any one church or denomination or something like that. And I think having those third party uh, institutions, just like you have with accounting and legal and all that kind of stuff, you should also have probably with abuse, uh, only, only because um, the church really is handling so many fragile and vulnerable people from children to people who have been through horrendous things, even to veterans um, who are another really, uh, uh, you know, uh, overlooked traumatized group in the church. And so, um, and, and, and of course, first responders, right? I mean, there's just so many people who engage different kinds of trauma every single day uh, that, that need to be handled well. Uh, and then uh, I think Diane Langberg is a, a great example of somebody who is speaking truthfully about these issues right now. She's kind of laying bare a lot of the, a lot of the common sense um, conclusions that uh, empirical research and psychology is giving us right now. But I think your question is deeper even than that, which is um, uh, what what should we be doing and when shouldn't we be doing? Um, and right now, this is all so confusing. Okay, so, so politics, um, politics and individual life are being confused. And a lot of people think, well, politics is about people. No, politics is about peoples. Okay, the polis, the city, it's about the collection, right? And uh, psychology is about the individual and sociology is about the studying the polis through the lens of the individual. So, um, so where the reformed community can do better 
is that it can actually start to dignify subjective data, which means that um, we need to reclaim a concept of quote unquote, my truth. Okay, a lot of people don't like that uh, because they have certain, um, you know, simplified notions or rather sim simplistic notions of uh, epistemology that force them to say, there's no such thing as my truth, there's only the truth. Well, again, it's the same thing Van Til was, does with the word autonomy, right? It's like, you can't have autonomy, only God has autonomy, right? It's like, well, technically there's only objective truth if you're talking about truth through the lens of objectivity. But if you're talking about truth as it is in its own shape, um, there's a reason that, like, for example, theologian Linda Zegzebski has had to come up, formulate notions like divine omnisubjectivity, because just to say omniscience is not enough. We have to say that God knows all facts, not only as they are, but as they are to us. Uh, and, and so even the fact that we're being forced to formulate things like that in light of psychological research, I think is important for us and should impress upon us the importance of saying this person's story deserves to be heard. Okay, listen, when you just listen to somebody, <laughs> right, and, and you just listen to their story and you care about them and you don't force it into any kind of box, that in itself is healing, right? Not every person's story has to be a win for us, you know? And, and so that's number one. Number two, I think we have to start resisting the temptation to always interpret our lives as if today is the final arc in my story arc, in my journey, and like, wow, today I wake up and I can see all the things that are all the reasons why all the bad things happened. And, and I can see in my own life the personal growth that was meant, that was intended through all of the hardship I've suffered. You know, and, and I think we all kind of know that at one level, and in a sense that's kind of a truism, I, I suppose. But at another level, I would just say, um, we have to stop sprinting towards resolution, um, you know, narrative resolution for ourselves. Uh, that's getting in the way of speaking truth. You know, that's getting in the way of kind of sitting down right in the middle of the road and just looking at what's in our pockets, looking at what, looking at the baggage we're carrying, looking at what we've been through, taking an honest um, inventory of the pain that we carry and, uh, and even the resentments we have towards God, right? That, that's one of the things that theology, one of the ways theology can get in the way, right? Is, is we say, you know, like, um, I really resent God for allowing this really terrible thing to happen in my family, even though I prayed for it. I didn't do anything heinous. I, I you know, obviously I've sinned in my life, but I, did, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And, and I prayed about it and it felt like it was right. And I thought I was following God. And all of a sudden he just pulled the rug out from under me. Right. And I resent him for that. Let's say that, you know, let's say that person is experiencing and believing just to be able to say it. And just to be able to be honest about it and not to require that it be released from our souls immediately, I think is just an acknowledgement of the fact that, and, and Ed Welch would say this all the time, right? Like human change happens a lot slower than we'd like, which means progressive mm -hmm. sanctification works a lot slower than we'd like. And we don't like applying slowness to the spirit, right? Because like the spirit's so powerful, like if he's going to change us, he's just going to do it. But um, sometimes we don't like to sort of look at the Spirit's work in us through that microscopic lens because it feels so merciless, you know? If God could change me and he could save me from all this sin right today, why wouldn't he just do it, you know? And that, to, to that question, we truly have no answer, right? <laughs> like, we have no idea other than that there are other souls that he wants to bring into fellowship with him that haven't been born yet, and so he just has to perpetuate the world somehow, right? Like, we don't know why all these bad things happen. But, but I think one of the ways that we can do better in trauma is to really resist explanation and to resist any kind of forced conception of journey and also to resist uh, competency confusion. You know, pastors are not equipped trauma counselors. And so um, I think that doesn't mean they can't be helpful, but I think they, they, they have to understand that um, there are professionals out there who can do a lot better work than they can um, and I, I actually believe in the participation of those two professions with one another. I think that's the most effective met, uh, modality, you know, because you've got somebody in their lives, but then you've got a third party uh, uh, objective person who can actually help them for their own sake. Right. And I think you need probably a pairing of those two things to really effectively provide care for somebody who's been through heinous evil. What it's done well, 
uh, I think people are beginning to be honest about this. People are beginning to be honest about their own trauma. People are being are beginning to be honest about, uh, about the fact that they have a lot of misgivings about evangelicalism. And, and I think we had this whole ex-evangelical movement on the left, and now we've got sort of a critique of hashtag Big Eva on the right, you know? And, and I think, you know, both of those, we, we, we maybe should not look at those movements so much as good movements or bad movements, but as sociologically representative of, of what's happening in the minds and hearts of evangelicals right now. I'm of the position where I went through a season where I really thought I was going to leave evangelicalism. I didn't like it. I was, I just more had a bad taste in my mouth from some of the institutional politics of it all. But I've reached a place now where I feel very comfortable coming back and saying, no, I am an evangelical and I own all the flaws of it and the, all the faults of it. And I want to make this place better. But to do that, we first have to admit that it needs to be made better. Um, and so I don't see a lot of that right now, but I'm hoping to see more of it. And um, and 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 also just some of the great work that some great uh, seminaries and reformed institutions like Reformed Theological Seminary, they have a fantastic counseling program, you know, a lot uh, Covenant Theological Seminary. I know they have a really great emphasis with I think Robert Winters over there uh, uh, with their psychology program or Bruce Winters. I, I don't know, somebody, somebody with a seasonal last name doing good work in psychology <laughs> over at, over at Covenant, uh, you know, but, but so, so I think the reform community cares. I think the evangelical reform community wants to do, wants to care, wants to do good. This is the credit evangelicalism doesn't get that they actually deserve. Evangelicals care probably more than anybody else in your life, how you're doing and how they can pray for you and what they can do and how they can serve. I mean, I mean, they treat you, these people treat you like gold, you know, and are there abuses? Are there mistreatments? Are there people who say careless things? Are there people who don't understand trauma and they don't understand, you know, all this stuff? And, you know, are, are they the perfect people who are the perfect counselors with the perfect responses to everything? No, but I mean, these are the people that pray for you. These are the people that actually pray for you. They don't just tweet about it. They don't just post about it. They're actually sitting in their rooms in the morning thinking about you pleading to God on your behalf. That's why I am an evangelical because evangelicals are the people that pray for me for real. And, um, and I want to be in a community of people that pray for me and the people that I can pray for. And they're going to be honest with me and tell me how I can pray for them. And that is the one thing that if we're going to remain Christians who are healing from trauma, we can never give up on is prayer and prayer and community and praying for one another, because I think that is the great leveler here. I think that is the great leveler when all the things and how this concept is a good concept or a bad concept or it's harmful or it's helpful. If I can come together with somebody else in prayer and they, I know they're lifting me up to God. I, what more can I ask from them? You know, what, what, what more can I ask from them to do? What, I'm not even entitled to that. And so I'm, I'm recovering myself from a, a season of sort of hot entitlements and, um, and my own life is just ups and downs like Abraham, you know, of holiness and not so holiness. And, uh, and you know, it's just a constant uh, journey fighting to be in fellowship with God, to see him clearly. And I think that's what we have to do. That's what we have to remember as we're healing from trauma. Reclaim our own individual journeys. Be willing to color outside the lines if necessary. But to really be sober about who really cares for you and who really doesn't. And I would, I would take prayer as a key indicator of exactly who that is, which is why I'm, which is why I'm here and why I'm committed to be here and why I'm so glad that I've found um, so many wonderful people here in evangelicalism who've patiently, patiently waited through, you know, talk about gospel coalition, Justin Taylor, that guy, that guy prays for me. I mean, that guy, that guy's just the man. And I mean, that Justin Taylor is one of the main reasons I, I'm, I'm still an evangelical because, because he prays for me. And that's, mm -hmm. that's what it is. And he's just, and uh, anyway, I'm being a little redundant at this point, but um, I think I've lost all my intellectual juice. <laughs> I think that's a, a great way to, to end our talk. Thank yeah. you, Paul Maxwell. That was very interesting. I feel like I could talk to you all day, actually. <laughs> I, I feel questions. that way too, Wyatt. Yeah, it's, you're a great listener. <laughs> uh, well, I, I am, you're my Anselm and I'm your Bozo, so I'm... There you go. I'm here I, for you. I appreciate you wearing that hat. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank yeah. you, Paul. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. To hear more, please subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or elsewhere.